Today's episode of The Watch on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and LA, and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help your local restaurants stay alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We are trying to raise $250,000, and if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, it's not TV, it's Andy Greenwald! Buddy, this is a new frontier for us. We've been doing podcasts since before they were a thing, really. I mean, and yeah. it's, it's like, it's been eight years and I think this is the first time I've ever done a podcast al fresco. Well, you've done a lot of podcasts from parking lots, as anybody who joined us throughout the, Bri- the Briar oh, Pratch production process knows. You're no stranger to outdoor podcasting. Rarely have you ever done backyard podcasting. Uh, <laughs> whether or not it's going to be like backyard wrestling, I'm very interested to find I, out. <laughs> I, I would like to preface it by saying I feel like one of the great privileged people in the world to even have a backyard to be podcasting from. I'm just saying my primary concern at this moment ranges... Well, it, it, my concerns at the moment range from uh, getting not Zoom bombed, IRL bombed by children. <laughs> yes. And or finding out that my neighbor just behind me has not finished devs and That'd thus be a tough ruining beat for them. the experience. Well we'll, we'll let your neighbor catch up a little bit because what we're going to do, we will talk about the devs finale and we'll talk about the season of devs uh, in a bit. But we have, <laughs> we have so much news and it's often been said about this podcast. Some people come for, for our friendship, but most people come for the news. You know, so I, if I can point, go, that's what I—that's what I come for too. I'm coming straight, Mickey Barb's with you right today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're just getting okay. Right, we're getting to the story behind the story. So there's a couple Finally. of different TV news headlines I want to hit with you today. Okay, uh, it's been a busy week in the in the industry. Why don't we start with Netflix, which right. uh, among <laughs> maybe standing alone in American uh, the American economy as one of the only companies is doing quite well in this first quarter, uh, aside from Amazon. Netflix released some of their Q1 numbers this week. I highly recommend you check out Lucas Shaw's reporting on this all. And Bloomberg, Lucas has been on the podcast a couple of times, and he's always uh, been a great buddy for the pod. He reported on it, and basically Netflix added 15 million subscribers in Q1, which which smashed Wall Street projections for what they were going to do. They added it a couple million, several million in, in the United States and North America and Canada, et cetera, uh, and a lot internationally. And obviously, you know, it was to be expected that with people having so much more time on their hands and being stuck home and not being able to go to movie theaters or sporting events or concerts or, you know, the mall or anything else, that that there would be some, an uptick in usage. I don't know that we necessarily understood just the uptick in new users that we would see for Netflix. And the good news sort of, for Netflix at least, and and... Thank God somebody's got good news. The good news didn't stop there because they also announced, I thought somewhat coyly, but they were just like, you need not worry about the pipeline for Netflix, that we work out right. very far in advance, that we have stuff 
in the cupboard already, and that we do not foresee a disruption to our pipeline, at least for this year and going into 2021. Now, the reason why I said coily is that there are some shows that were in production currently that were projected to air this year. Netflix always kind of, there's an understanding of when a show will come out, but they don't really announce hard release dates until they really feel like it. So something like Stranger Things, which was shooting in Albuquerque, among other places, uh, I think had a, a pause in their production. So they are not shooting. And I, I would have to imagine that Stranger Things season four will, will have a hard time meeting its unofficial release date of, I think it was Christmas this year. Other than that, The Crown is in the bag. They got that. They seem like they have a very healthy lineup of shows coming out, both in the near term and the long term. I guess I don't really have a question per se, Andy, as much as are you surprised? by how well they're doing right now. Uh, are you surprised that they borrowed another billion for more production? And are you surprised that they have coffers that deep that they can just ride this out? Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. And, and one of the ways is how uh, nimble Netflix can be as a company. And the other way is to look at how deeply embedded and established they've become as a brand. To speak to the former... I think it's worth noting that unlike even relatively forward-thinking entities like HBO, which is now transitioning to HBO Max, when you've broken the wheel, you aren't beholden to any aspect of the spokes. I don't know if I buy that analogy I just made, but I'm going to try and sell it. And what I mean is Netflix can just give us things when they feel like it, and they set the parameters for the delivery system. And what I mean is, for a season of television, we still have certain expectations. And so the thing that's going to happen to Billions, for example, which is on track to premiere its new season... No, seven episodes that go up, yeah. ...will be jarring in -hmm. that you'll make it seven weeks and then there'll be some words on the screen saying, hey guys... Jim and Bob Billions, I think those are the characters' names, will be (laughs) back to finish up their adventures, TBD, (laughs) right? That doesn't fully compute with viewers um, or with the people who are invested in Showtime, TBS, which owns Showtime as a company, right? That's sort of disruptive and strange. For Netflix to say, we're going to do half seasons. Here's three episodes. Yep. and, And then we'll put the other three up later. For whatever reason, it doesn't feel as existentially odd, right? It's just sort of they've always given us things in surprising ways and have kind of kept people on their toes about when seasons drop, what seasons mean. When you know, when when uh, they were doing talk shows, this the idea of a talk show appearing at a certain time on your servers or a week's worth of shows. So I think in that sense, Netflix is just already built into people's brains as a pipeline, and stuff just appears there. And so I think that helps it. The other thing in terms of um, being nimble is that Netflix is very, very much an international company and an international brand. And should the, you know, should, should I mean, I, I, I can't speak to global trends in virology at the moment. I wish that I could. But if, for example, places like Iceland and uh, South Korea potentially even New Zealand, remain well ahead of the curve, let alone having flattened the curve, and they're able to open up their film production there. Right. Those are places where Netflix is in business. And of course, many other companies are as well, but that's that's a place where they are they have a track record of making things. So does that an, mean they're un, going to unexpected suddenly... pivot to Germany for Stranger Things season four? It, exactly. So that's the next thing. Like, is something like that going to happen? Well, we're not there yet. But 
The other thing that Netflix can do and has had a lot of success doing is saying, well, you've enjoyed X, Y, and Z movies, uh, American movies. Let's look at your suggested for you. Oh, there's Money Heist. That's not mm-hmm. American, but it fits into the sensibilities you've established yourself as um, having. And so we're going to sort of feed this to you. And they can continue to upstream international content that way in a way that I think users will be surprisingly comfortable with. So in that way, being nimble has really helped them. I think the flip side of that, and this is something I think you and I discounted when we've been talking, and we're not, we weren't alone in this. I think this was an industry-wide um, conversation, one that shouldn't be ignored completely, but I think one that needs to be looked at in a slightly different light, which is the Netflix is in trouble narrative. And the Netflix is in trouble narrative was predicated on all of the new big Thor's hammer swinging competitors entering the marketplace for streaming services, uh, Disney, Apple, Warner, Universal, etc. But they were also based on this idea that Netflix as a company had some curious accounting. I don't mean like their books are cooked. I mean, they're doing what Amazon did for they're years. They're operating which is, on a lot of debt. Yeah. They're operating on an enormous amount of debt and continuing to have value by showing growth to shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I remember, you know, in my, one of my previous discussions with Lucas, we actually talked about, you know, the the American consumer specifically, their ability to keep up with the expanded amount of choice, the, the dent in their wallet that all these streaming services were going to cause. I and mean, at what point it was like as expensive to be subscribed to five or six different streaming services as it would be to just to have a cable account. And he was like, I can't really see a problem unless there is a economic recession. And it seems like Netflix, it seems like Netflix might be a little bit recession proof. Yes. And I think one of the reasons why is, you know, a company I don't, you know, you know, a brand I don't worry about, um, Kleenex, you mm-hmm. know, a brand I don't worry about Q-tips. I yeah. don't worry about products whose brand name has become the default word for an entire line of things. Yes. No one says, can I have that Scott branded tissue paper? You say, can I have a Kleenex? In the same way in the South, I think people generally ask for Coke, even if it's Pepsi or whatever, right? So Netflix's head start has really, really cemented itself as what streaming entertainment means for a generation, if not more than one generation, in both directions younger people than what I th- what I might be thinking of and, and older people as well. So you kind of maybe, maybe you can't put a price tag on that because Look, they, they have an ability to set the conversation and set the narrative that is unparalleled, whether it's Ozark coming back or Tiger King taking over the internet, if not the world, um, no, dropping I mean, like, comedy look, specials. Look at their top 10. Reality they shows. Have, they have reality shows like Too Hot to Handle in there. They've got Tiger King, King and Ozark, quote unquote originals, like you said. And um, by by some accounts, Ozark is as popular as Tiger King in some metrics. Um, in the Ryan Ty- household. In <laughs> the Ryan household. They're also still doing that Netflix thing, which is reviving shows or amplifying shows that had a recent shelf life. Yep. They did it with you, where they actually just straight up now make you. But now if you look at the top 10, Waco is in there. The Taylor Kitsch starring in as David Koresh in that miniseries. That, is that going to get renewed? It's not going to get renewed. I mean, unless they want to just see what's up with, uh, with Janet Reno. But, yeah. but that show was like, fine. That was an okay miniseries that came out a year or so ago and now is in the top 10 of Netflix somehow. The ease of use, the user interface, the ubiquity, the volume of the library, the depth of the library, and the fact that you can easily 
turn on that homepage and have that be your interface with TV full stop. Mm -hmm. Reality, movies, comedy, drama, whatever you want from television. You can find there easily at a touch screen. And while we've watched Apple and while we've watched, we'll soon see uh, HBO Max, while we've seen Quibi, all these places try to launch their initiatives. Netflix's head start seems more impressive now than ever. Yeah, I agree. And I would even take it further and say it's not necessarily... um a, a, a gateway to television. It's a gateway to culture at this point. And I know this is one of the most inebriating squares on your the watch drinking game board that you guys have at home. But Chris and I love the monoculture when we talked about certain TV shows. And maybe we've been looking at it wrong. Maybe instead of looking for the next Game of Thrones, really what has become the TV monoculture is Netflix itself. Yeah. In that generally a large swath of people you know, whether they are friends or family or coworkers or your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts, the shows that they are talking about on a given week tend to be Netflix shows. People just interact with it the way they used to interact with TV and just flip around. And so the same And it, it's been rate, behavior towards their own patterns. Like they, I, I do think we, you know, a couple of months ago, we were deep in conversations about how re refreshing it was to have a couple of shows on Sundays, like Outsider that we were like, oh, it's so dope. Yeah. And we get to come in. Maybe what it is, is it's just easier to do this fucking podcast when that's happening. Yes. Oh, that's absolutely You know what I mean? And I'm not, the, one of the things that always comes up when we do these streaming wars conversations is that we, you, you kind of get in and outside of the bubble and we can be very, very insider baseball about like both our viewing habits and also the industry itself. But I think that for most of the people in this country, they're very happy to have the full season of Ozark and not have to wait two and a half months for it to be over. And that's just, that's kind of, you, you kind of have to kiss the ring at a certain point. The, the hardest thing that, that I experienced as a TV creator is how do you get your thing seen? Just how do you get it seen? Yeah. Because, you know, if people actually watch it, they can make a determination and you either have a fan or you don't. And that's that's fair play. Netflix does not seem to have that problem. I'm not saying everything that's on Netflix is a hit, far from it. But the sampling alone on Netflix, the comfort people feel to just let it autoplay or just press or play something for out. five minutes, yeah. 10 minutes yeah. is unparalleled. And I, and I don't have access to the data. In fact, very few people do, if anyone I don't know if that's the same on uh, competitors like Hulu or Amazon Prime. It could be, as you were saying, the interface has a lot to do with it. But you know, when when they announce things that eighty four household, eighty four million households worldwide have quote sampled the Spencer movie with Mark Wahlberg, I absolutely believe it. That doesn't mean eighty four million did. people yeah. liked it. It doesn't mean eighty four million people watched it. But I would love absolutely. to know actually different like in a different way. I want to know you using you as a sample size, how many people checked out on Orthodox? Because that's a show that if it was on a terrestrial or linear, you know, like a, a cable network, I, I think I think it would have been interesting to know just whether or not more people gave Unorthodox a chance because it was quote unquote buried on Netflix versus it was being pushed forward by a smaller network. A million percent, I think that's that's accurate because the thing that Unorthodox reveals, and I'll just plug it again here. I loved it. I think people should check it out. I've been recommending it left and right, both because it's excellent, it's surprising. Uh, it's also four parts, which makes it very digestible. But the swath of people in my life who know about it and have seen it or were intrigued by it or have thought about watching it is very high. And it cuts across 
all age groups, people in their 20s that I know and people in their 60s and 70s who I've spoken to. And that speaks to Netflix's market penetration and mm-hmm. dominance, right? So it's pretty interesting to think about that that is potentially insurmountable. The other piece of it, and this helps us open up the conversation to bring in HBO Max, which some more details about it have come out this week and a launch date of May 27th was announced. Um, Today, we're recording this on Thursday, I think, some of the ads. It is definitely Thursday. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sure. (laughs) Uh, And the ad, which is actually quite clever, and I think the people who thought of it probably took themselves out back when you could take yourselves out for things and had a cocktail and deserved it. But it was like, it's like from from bada to bing to bang, right? And there's a picture of Tony Soprano, of Chandler from Friends, and of uh, Nerdman from Big Bang Jim Theory Parsons. show I've, I've never yeah. seen. Sheldon. And old well, you're Sheldon. Such, you're such a fucking elite, man. Old Sheldon. As a, <laughs> yeah, no, old, I watch young old Sheldon. Sheldon. Yeah, that's right. That's, you're a young Sheldon. You're trying to go in order. That is a hundred percent. You're Brian going Brown. better call Saul to breaking bad there. Brian Brown from the Briar Patch room. That is a hundred percent his joke. All credit to him. Um, people are losing their mind about this. I mean, in as much as people have headspace to lose their mind about something so trivial, but I think what people are reacting to is something that we talked about initially, which is the most valuable thing about HBO is the sanctity of its brand, right? Mm -hmm. It is a imprimatur of quality. Even if you don't like a show on HBO, you you give it some respect, you give it more time than maybe it deserves, as was the case with me in Westworld. You pay attention to it. It influences and is in the conversation. As soon as you open the gates and start mixing things up, it is potentially diluted. And I think people are saying, Tony, like, I like Friends. I like the Sopranos, but I don't want Friends in my Sopranos. Those are completely different parts of my brain, and they don't make sense together. And that, honestly, I think is a roadblock to people understanding HBO Max, let alone signing up for it. And Netflix, again, to its credit, and it could just be because it was a new entity, it could just be its relentlessness, or it just it had the jump. People are very comfortable understanding that Episodes of Barbie's Dream House, a cartoon that it gets a lot of burn in my house, mm-hmm. uh, is on Netflix. And so, so is the Vietnam War. And so is, right. And given, and, given the background and, of what we're seeing from you here today in your video, I think you need to watch the Vietnam War. Yeah, because I'm watching Barbie's Dream House. <laughs> but, 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 but also Nailed It and Ugly Delicious and also um, Russian Doll or whatever. You know, Russian Doll being the example, and we could pull out others, of a show that, like, or Ozark, that could theoretically be on an HBO. Sure. So we're comfortable getting all of our TV from Netflix. They had a jump on that, too. The thing about HBO Max is it's great to have all this stuff, but what is the singular drive or passion to get you there other than, oh, where's my, where are my friends reruns slash Station Eleven? sounds like it could be cool when they finish production on it. So the one thing that I noticed in that trailer that they released this week that I think is unremarked upon so far. And it's kind of interesting because you'd think with the amount of nostalgia and, and uh, you know, going back and watching old movies and especially when we do rewatchables, like I'm always like, okay, I got to go find Ferris Bueller. I'm not really sure where that... The HBO Max movie vault is going to be pretty fucking good. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people might already have a copy of The Matrix or they might already have a copy of, of uh, Wonder Woman or what have you. But um, let's not underestimate that. That's a that's a nice little 
sweetener because that's something that Netflix I don't think has anymore. A lot of those movies have come off that service, which is to say nothing of some of the um, staple sort of uh, syndication shows that they would run like The Office and, and things like that. But HBO Max actually, the person who jumped out at me at that trailer, it wasn't Anna Kendrick in the new show that they were, they were offering and it wasn't Issa Rae and Insecure or the dragon in Game of Thrones. It was Neo from The Matrix. And it was uh, Tim Robbins and Shawshank Redemption. And it was Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper and Stars Born. Because I was like, oh yeah, you know what? There might be enough movies on this thing to make the price of it worth it. What's interesting about that, and I don't disagree with you, is the curation and the presentation. Because there's always been two kinds of TV watching. I'm sure there are many more. But passive and active. And for us, in our graying generation, passive would be flipping the channels and Ferris Bueller's Day Off is on. Or stopping, yeah, on Seinfeld or whatever. And you park. You park it. Similarly, passive is, for us in the old days, it would be like turning on the Fox affiliate and there's the hour block of Seinfeld or going back further, Cheers or whatever, or even the way people watch Jeopardy and still do. Um, That kind of watching still exists. There's also the much more active one where you are deep diving and searching. And, you know, even as a, Side note to this conversation, one of the nice things, uh, you know, there's really been only two nice things about this awful time in American history. Obviously, Netflix's earnings call. What a (laughs) boffo experience for all of us. Two, my wife and I are finally taking advantage of our Criterion Collection subscription and enjoying watching some French French New Wave. I I can tell by your shirt. We've been been expanding. That's just for you. I don't even know if anyone else is ever going to see it. That's just for the fans. Um... But like last night, we watched In the Heat of the Night, which is just one of those classic films that has fallen through. It's a fun date night movie. It's a masterpiece. Of yeah, course. pretty good. But I had never seen it. And, you know, I just sort of thought that I had and I hadn't. And then you watch it. But we did the thing that we used to make fun of not having time to do, which is we took 15 minutes and scrolled through a bunch of stuff and our own list and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so what's interesting at, with, about these new services is whether they will find a way to, I, I, I don't know the business speak for this, incentivize, monetize, mm-hmm. prioritize. Editorial that type, curation. That yeah. type of viewing. It, it, because Netflix is, and it's worked for them, is all in on the frothiest, buzziest top, right? Like that's where the action is on Netflix. And obviously you can sink down further and find gems and whatever. But especially with their top 10 and with their enormous expenditure on new stuff, that's kind of what their brand is mutating into. This is where it's happening right mm-hmm. now. Peacock, uh, which is the uh, NBC Universal Comcast streamer, uh, which launched sort of soft launched for people who have like higher really high Xfinity. level Comcast accounts. Yeah. Yes. Um, from what I understand, has a quote unquote channel on it that's showing stuff like TV used to do. Right. And I kind of wonder if that is a smart play for these more legacy services. Um, will HBO Max have a way not just to say, here's all the stuff we have, which is is and always has been Amazon's approach to curating its entire business. You want ink jets for your printer? We got that, but we also have the third season of Mrs. Maisel. Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's cool. We got all of it. Um, but for HBO Max, I think, obviously a lot of its money is going to be made from here's all your HBO stuff, here's Friends. Like, that's a nice backbone. But knowing how and when to surface, like, remember The Matrix? 
Here you go. Yes. Right. Of, classic. Is it? Do you guys do classic movie night? Do you do putting it? But putting is there it in like front a tab you? in the front page that you're just like all of the jams? Like, will they bring in the TCM, the Turner Classic Movies yeah. library, in some capacity, which they had talked about? What is the least offensive version of nudging you into autoplay that they can do? Because I do think that people generally don't sit down to watch the types of movies that we're talking lovingly about. What they do is, oh, well, that'll be nice. Or, oh, I forgot that. You know what I mean? And, and I know you and I talk about missing no, that kind you know, of No, you know, it's funny that we're even having this conversation, though, because one of the things that's obviously been happening on the flip side of, 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 of this economic story is that there's just been a huge hit to the media and there's been a huge hit to people who write about movies and people who, you know, film comment stopping its print edition from film comment, stopping its print edition to tons of movie theaters, small rep houses, art houses, independent theaters that were showing stuff going under. And it's always a dangerous business to rely on business to do your, your editorial curation. I mean, like Mm -hmm. it, it, it gets, it gets murky is all I'm saying. And, you know, I think you can rely, you can want that to happen, but I don't know that we'll, I wonder whether or not future generations that are primarily experiencing these movies through services like this will have the same experience maybe that even we did with magazines or books or movie theaters or video stores that were kind of independent of converting subscriptions saying to you, hey, like you might want to check this movie out if you liked this movie. I didn't expect to go down this road, but I think it's one worth going down, especially at this moment in history where we have seen people take to zoom or social media and say like let's do a live watch of this thing that i made a long time ago or let's revisit this or let's experience this together because that that editorial curatorial thing i mean first and foremost you and i believe that newspapers and magazines and independent media voices should be supported they should be saved they should be people should pay money to them like that is paramount but it's an interesting thing to see like how these larger companies because if you put if HBO Max or Warner like starts an editorial department and says like we're going to hire your favorite film writers to gush about stuff we have on our site, that doesn't seem like other than the people who will get checks for a while, that doesn't seem like a winning strategy. What are the other potential versions of that? Is it sort of a soft as you were saying, here's the date night collection that they mm-hmm. do themselves? Is it and Criterion is also is a special kind of brand and a special thing and really worth the yearly subscription, I got to say. Well, just even the act of being in the Criterion collection is itself a piece of curation. Being in the HBO Max collection is not necessarily that. But something that, true, but something the Criterion does really well, and it's it's small, but, you know, to, they have a bunch of people, including two friends of the pod, Megan Abbott, uh, who created Dare Me and is a wonderful novelist, Alan Cumming, who is on Patch, and I, I guess a couple other things like Spy Kids or whatever. But they have their own... <laughs> you know, my, me at the movies kind of thing, right? Where they, they got interviewed and they suggest things and then there are the five or six movies that they were talking about and you can kind of enjoy that experience. And they also just do wonderful, you know, noir from the 40s, uh, musicals from the 70s or whatever, where they group things in a different way. And for these library-heavy entities, of which Netflix is not anymore, as you said, like they're losing a lot of it. That is a smart play, although I don't know if that is the... Joe Popcorn on Main Street play, or is that just the sort of like there are people like perhaps like Lucas Shaw who could speak to this more eloquently? But it, for us, it's for me, it's just it's interesting. I don't have any answers. Yeah, I guess I, what I'm really trying to get at, and this goes, you know, 
all of the caveats about who owns the ringer now aside, like I think about this a lot when I'm engaging with Spotify as like a music service because it's a lot of what I do is search based. A lot of what I do is typing in the name of a band that I want to listen to rather than the band being in front of me. Now that's yes. just my personal experience. I know that I know of other people who are like, I go to the new release page and I give everything a listen or I, you know, I go to these different playlists like Rap Caviar or Indigo and I, I check stuff out and I, I do that too. But a lot of what I do is I am the pursuant of whatever the art is I want to in- ingest. And I think that that is basically what's going to happen with a lot of these services. When you go to Netflix, you have the homepage, but you can type in like a movie and see what the recommended if you liked this movie comes up is. But for the most part, Netflix is Netflix. You're not like going there to really watch Michael Clayton and then 10 movies like Michael Clayton. Mm-hmm. So I'll be very curious to know what happens to the art of discovery and the art of I don't mean the art of discovery, but what what happens to discovery and what happens to how you form your taste if this is the way that you find the pop culture you're ingesting. Yeah, and also then to bring it full circle, which of these services rises to the top, which which make themselves essential? And if this kind of curatorial engagement becomes an important lever in their pathway to success because I, I I think that I think that the thesis of what this conversation has been is don't don't look past Netflix you know sure. I, I, I I think that especially and this this is something that I don't think we've quite said explicitly in this conversation we'd said it a few weeks ago as people's this was always going to reach a tipping point in terms of the finances of it uh, for the consumer but as we enter a very painful time globally economically I think the question. I think it becomes a lot more cutthroat. As it, yeah. you know, what is worth spending money on in this moment for your family when you don't have as much money as you did a month before or six months before? Yeah, and can you even can you even be one of these services? And I'm talking about Quibi in particular in this case, without spending a ton of money. I mean, I, a shit ton of money and racking up like a, a huge bill for that just that launch. You know, and, and Quibi didn't have a library, so they had a bunch of shows, and albeit they're shorter, but you've already seen some executives leaving and revamping their marketing strategy and changing it from being mobile only that now you can yeah. watch it on, on other devices or your, your TV. I, I don't know. It's such a hard thing to do. I, I, I think the thing that is in HBO Max's favor, all respect to the Queen Anna Kendrick and the other original programming they're doing, the thing that's in HBO Max's mm-hmm. favor is that HBO is a brand that has 30, 40 years now evidence uh, to, to operate from that it is a brand people will pay money for. Yeah, they make conversation pieces. Yeah. It, but people have paid for it, you know, mm-hmm. even as it, and they've continued to pay for it even during cord cutting era. I, I don't know the numbers, like who's HBO now versus who's still getting it through their Xfinity or whatever else they have. But people have paid for it. And as long as they keep a relatively high level of quality, people will continue to pay for it. And the fact that they get everything else now for the same price might keep them paying for it. I think that that's not wrong. And what that means for something like Peacock, you know, and again, I, I didn't caveat it, but like, obviously I am in business with the Comcast, NBC, Shineheart, the big, the big bird, man. You love family. it. Um, Beautiful plumage on the Peacock. It's, it's, it'll be really interesting to see. I think a soft launch is really good for them, especially now in a time of uncertainty. Um, it was launching primarily uh, to 
have the Olympics as part of it. That's not happening. So as awful and potentially devastating as that is, that gives them an even longer on-ramp to say, okay, now we're really here. Because right now they're kind of sneaking in the back door for cable subscribers, and then what will it be? We will see. But but Netflix is <laughs> Netflix is King Kong right now. One thing we haven't talked about in a while is the plus. Um, because yeah. the plus doesn't really have a lot of jams for the, the older than 13 crowd. Uh, after you get and, through and, Mandalorian. And that seems to be the by intention. Like everything that was developed for it, but trended older, like High Fidelity, got Exaptive. out of there. Yeah, except now they got our girl Leslie Headland making a Star Wars show. That's cool. I mean, it's <laughs> exciting. I, I so love this, this was announced this week. Yeah, Leslie Headland, who, who did uh, Russian Doll with Natasha Leone, and it was obviously a show that Andy and I adored. And she also did Bachelorette. Uh, and directed episodes of Terriers, and um, you know, as, as she was a, on the writing staff. That she didn't on the writing staff. That was her first, Sorry, on the writing first staff job, Terriers. baby writer on Terriers. Well, she's she's going to Star Wars. She she has apparently inked a deal with Lucasfilm to make plot plot points are under wraps, but what is rumored to be a female centric Star Wars story. Obviously, that would be for Disney Plus. Um, we haven't talked about Star Wars in a while, but obviously, like the Cassie and Andor show is still being developed. Uh, Diego Luna has spoken very highly of that experience of about going back to that character, and is even there have been comparisons made between the Cassie and Andor show and Better Call Saul in terms of like we know where that character is going, so the joy is in how they're going to tell this story. And I'm personally very interested in watching that. I was also very interested in watching the Obi Wan Kenobi show, but that had some hurdles and some speed bumps, as a lot of Star Wars stuff does. I guess my question to you is. Can someone as iconoclastic as Leslie exist inside of the Lucasfilm Star Wars universe? We're going to find out. You know, I can't uh, speak in too many particulars about this, but I do know that things that you and I have talked about on this podcast as, you know, can, now that the Skywalker saga is over, can Star Wars become uh, not a genre, but an entire, literally a universe, meaning can you tell all different kinds of stories within this very popular IP? Can the idea of Star Wars function as a cross-genre Trojan horse to tell um, detective stories, Mm -hmm. romantic stories, procedural stories even? Can it, especially as a TV franchise, bend itself to suit the more idiosyncratic visions of story? Can the story bend itself to suit the idiosyncratic visions of storytellers? And that was obviously the big collision in the film franchise between, you know, past and present and future and between sort of, you know, able uh, stewards like J.J. Abrams and people who were being a little more radical in their thinking like Ryan Johnson, blah, blah, blah. These are conversations we've had a lot and will continue to have. I can tell you that those are the same conversations that are happening inside of Lucasfilm. And sure. that those are those are the conversations that are happening internally within the people who work there from Kathy Kennedy on down, but also with the people that they bring in to talk about what would you do with Star Wars. And the people that are working there are very, very, very... Uh, appear, at least in my interactions and experiences with people I know who've been there, quite self-reflective. Yeah. And looking f- towards... Like this is a chance to turn the page. This is it. This is our chance to do it. And we better take some big swings. So they're taking big meetings. They're, they're talking big stuff. 
it's cool that the canary in this coal mine for them might be Leslie. You know, she's she's ready for it. She's tough as hell. She's smarter than hell. And she's a really good writer and director and just, and just filmmaker. And so she can take it. You know, I think she can take the pressure. I think she can take the hits and she can take the skepticism. Someone was going to have to be the first one. <laughs> this right. doesn't mean the show's even going to be made. We don't know what the show's going to be. We don't know when shows will get made again. But absolutely, whether there's a pandemic or not, there had to have been an internal conversation of, of all the people we've met with and maybe we've gotten close to the finish line with or maybe we've even signed deals with and we don't know about it yet, who's getting announced first, you know? Right. There was, right. There's politics to that. And I think they made a good choice, both in working with Leslie, because I'd love to see what she comes up with, whether there are um, spaceships in it or not, but also in that she is, I think, pretty uniquely equipped to handle the slings and arrows of the internet and everything else that goes along with it. Yeah, I do too. I think she'll have a lot of goodwill going towards this project in general. Uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the season that we just saw of Devs. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jamel Hill. And I'm Van Lathan. We're proud to introduce our new podcast, The Wire, Way Down in the Hole. We're going to recap, break down, and analyze every episode of the iconic HBO hit series, The Wire, starting from the beginning with season one. First episodes hit you on April 15th. Now, every podcast episode will include recaps, signature moments, foreshadowing, key character deep dives, little-known facts, and also awards, such as We Love This Show But, the Stringer Bell Fuckboy Award, my personal favorite, who won the episode, and more. So subscribe to The Wire Way Down in the Hole on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you in West Baltimore on April 15th. All right, we're back. Uh, we missed talking about devs on Monday because we were too busy losing our minds about Better Call Saul. And I wanted to just, you know, like we ha- we've we had like some, I think, mixed feelings about devs is an accurate way to put it. I think we're very, very high on it in the uh, in the beginning. Alternated here and there. I think there are, our opinions differed on certain episodes. Came back around a little bit later in the season. Uh, I thought Seven was especially strong, if I'm remembering it correctly. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I wanted to get your feelings about where you felt like the the thing ended. Um, I I kind of I kind of feel like it ended where a lot of sci-fi does, where uh, the explanations and the answers are a lot more pedestrian than maybe the questions. But I also thought that this episode featured some of the most exquisite filmmaking mm-hmm. you you will see on any screen this year, and for that I think it needs to be saluted for all the issues that I've had with the show in various ways, my admiration for its, uh, the way it looked and sounded and felt never wavered. Yeah, that's where I wanted to start too. I just, all told, and and yeah, we dipped a little bit in the middle as I think the show did, but I think all told, just as a luxurious filmmaking experience and something kind of fun and surprising and disturbing to lose yourself in and to talk about, this was really up there. And I think that this was, without question, a success. Um, just as a project, as an, as something for FX to, to take a swing on. I continue to think about it. I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I, I realize I'm hearing myself like that there's a but coming. I'm not sure that there is other than to say, I mean, look, Alex Garland did a great long interview with Alan Sevenwall afterwards, and I think people should read it. And he's basically like, this is the best thing I've ever done. And I'm more proud of this than anything else I've ever done. And I love that. I love I love the confidence. I love yeah. the swagger. Yeah. And I love knowing that because this was a TV show where he was completely empowered, which 
wasn't necessarily the case. We don't know what went down behind the scenes on Annihilation, but it seems like there were some bumps along the way. Um, that this probably was the purest experience for him in terms of getting what he wanted in his head onto the page and then onto the screen. And FX has a long history of being very filmmaker friendly, if not even sometimes to a fault. So that in and of itself is cool. This is that pure, raw, undiluted British flake <laughs> yeah. or whatever that Alex Garland fans have been have been waiting for. So I do think then, though, it's worth kind of unpacking on a more granular and plot level what it was that we got, you know, uh, and, and, and how we felt about it. Because let's start, let's, let's go to a specific place. And I just want to ask you about it because it's been a week. I'm sort of jogging my memory as, as, we, as we discuss it. But the episode... I got a lot of quick fire challenges kind of banging around okay. in my mind right now. So I may not remember every detail. Well, oh, I thought you meant you were going to make me answer to them, but you were speaking literally about quickfire challenges from the multiple seasons and multiple timelines of Top Chef you are holding inside of your I, I am the, brain the box. forest in Amaya of Top Chef right now. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that. I guess what I mean is the episode takes us on this track of Lily fighting and then giving into Forrest's understanding and, well, beyond understanding, bedrock belief in uh, determinism, right? Mm -hmm. That there is no free will. And she seems to finally buckle under that. And from the, you know, of a matter of the time that she sees the film of her doing the thing that she does to Forrest to doing it or almost doing it, it's minutes pass, right? And then suddenly she's a believer. Then she shows free will. And this is the moment that broke the machine, right? She and tosses broke, the gun, yeah. And broke the computer and broke Forrest's ideas of certainty about what was possible. And then it all kind of happens anyway. And I don't know, and I'm asking you both as you, and also as the deep, deep Jacques Cousteau of Reddit that you've become, <laughs> what are we to make of this? I don't have a glib answer or a hot take as to what the show was saying about free will or inevitability of fate in that moment. It seemed cool, and then yeah. it kind of, like the show wanted to say what it wanted to say anyway. There's been a conversation that you and I have had over the course of this year, especially as it relates to Outsider. And I, I think we've brought in a couple of other crime shows in the in the proceedings about where you put the audience in terms of what they know versus what the characters on the show know. And uh, I think Fennessy and a couple of other people in our Slack and our TV Slack were talking about this a couple of weeks ago and I thought it was really insightful about the whole Lily problem and having mm-hmm. Lily, you, you, we get to go on Lily's journey but also see Katie and Forrest and know already what it is Lily is trying to discover. Even if the the Katie Forrest plan starts out as breadcrumbs and you only get it from conversations that they're having with one another and with Kenton. We know that there is this larger conspiracy and even beyond that conspiracy, a larger idea at play about how Lily is being used as a pawn in this giant game and that the end of that game is trying to get Forrest back to his his daughter. His his, his daughter. Just quick sidebar. He never wants to see the wife. The wife, that's that's an interesting one. Do we ever talk seemed, about this? Like he's like, I gotta create recreate digital heaven so I can hang out in a field with my daughter. 
the wife, you know, if she doesn't make the upload, it's okay. Can you imagine if he ever came clean to her and he's like, you won't believe the length that I went to be here with you? And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, I, I, I you know, I lived the, the miserable life of a, of a monk for decades building yeah, the most complicated yeah. computer of all time. And I and then I sacrificed myself and I experienced the horror of death multiple times and walked into it willingly all so I could see our beloved daughter Amaya again. And she's like, cool. Uh, <laughs> it's like, well, you're, you're a bonus, you know? So it's did like, you buy three nice seats for that plane too. or kind of like, do I get a window here or what? <laughs> So, or, or even if she was like, during that time when you were living the life of a, you know, a, a self-punishing, self-denying monk, you didn't even seek the company of anyone else? It's like, eh, there's this girl, Katie, you know, things got weird. We met at the cafeteria. I mean, look, the thing. No, I, I guess my thing was just basically like, this had a profound impact on the way I think I, I processed and then, it, and then understood the finale. Which was that the finale should have been the deep download. The finale should have been like, you've been searching this entire time. You've been feeling around in the dark for the light switch. Here we go. The light is on. This is what devs is. Now, I think it would have made a much more frustrating experience if the entire show up until that point had been Lily saying, what is devs? What did Sergei see on that screen that broke him? I was happy to have a more of an ensemble story with... um, with Stuart and everybody else. But I think for in terms of the tension, it really had a negative impact on it. I, I, I agree. And I, and I think what I was going to interject to say was just one of the downsides of a complete auteur vision of something is that you're only going to be shown what interests the auteur and everything else just simply isn't interesting. And if you're, if you are ever interested in the other stuff, you're kind of shit out of luck. And so that's what we got and we sort of have to deal with that as it is not as it as it might have been but i think what you're speaking to is absolutely right because i think it's you know it's fundamental it's like drama 101 or even more remedial than that which is that what you know what do you, what do your characters want and we had two protagonists on the show essentially it was more or less a two-hander although it shifted and waxed and waned at times but if it's a, if it's the forest and lily show what forest wants is absolutely crystal clear to us early on and then he gets it and that's his arc and Mm -hmm. i guess we learn the cost of it to some degree to him but he's never really except for the one moment when he watches lily throw the gun his absolute certainty is never once shaken and he is ultimately rewarded for it the 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 enduring criticism that i feel about the show or or just questioning is whatever Lily wanted and who Lily was. I mean, it is the, it, the show did just essentially to me have a Lily problem or 50% of its story. Um, what did she want? I guess she wanted to know what Sergey wanted. I guess she wanted justice for Jamie. But beyond that, the show's made very, very little effort to do anything more for her other than to have characters talk about how amazing and inspiring she was. There was a moment, I think in episode one, where we saw her at work and we mm-hmm. learned that maybe she was good at work too or had a point of view at work. But beyond that, she was to me... She never really brings her work into play. Right. She's a blank slate. She's a cipher. What is her worldview? What has shaped her worldview? What makes her passionate about it? How does she feel about corporate culture or Silicon Valley culture or her life or that her mother lives in China? We saw that she was a little bit 
unreliable, I guess, or maybe made bad choices in her personal and romantic life, that's all backfilled, right? Because up to the moment when she finds out he's a spy, Sergei seems like a great choice for her. And she left Jamie because she's an autonomous human being who should be in love with who she wants to be in love with. And then when she revisits them in The Sim, Sergei's kind of a jerk when he's pushed on the yeah. secret Russian malware in his computer. Yeah. And St. Jamie has a backpack full of lemons and is just ready to take her back <laughs> in his arms. He's ready to garnish it up. He's ready to muddle. So that felt a little bit... <laughs> Are we being plot dorks? Ready to muddle. Are we being plot dorks? Like, are we like, like, wouldn't Sam Esmail say you guys are, you guys are getting lost in the wrong sauce. This is a show to be hit over the head with. This is a show to turn off the lights, put it on the biggest screen you can find, put the wireless headphones on and get your brain blown out by it. Yes. And nothing will make Sam happier than you representing his worldview, except I think he stopped listening to us around the time he went on to big picture for the first time. (laughs) But we're not salty about that. But yes, but yes and no. I mean, I think that, I think that I agree with you. I think that ultimately, I think that's what I was kind of trying to say and maybe in an overly wordy way, which is I was down with it. I was down with the devs experience. I'm glad I took the ride. Um, but when you get down into the weeds where maybe you should never go with a show like this, those parts of it just, I couldn't quite let them go. Because I guess I, I being greedy, I wanted it to be a colossal head trip, but I also wanted it to linger in the heart a little bit more than it than it did. Yeah. Um, so the plot dork in me is left wondering why Stuart did what he did, how he felt about it, how much he had watched ahead, and w- what it meant, what Katie was going to do with this thing, and then mm-hmm. ultimately, ultimately, like what kind of if Devs is the most powerful computer ever designed, what is the backup disk for devs look like because if you're going to build something like this building it on a fault line in northern california <laughs> yeah and making it susceptible to earthquakes and fires and Your all floating the other, elevator falls and the whole thing is just fucking kaput all the other natural wonders that we were blessed with out here it's super dope State, yeah <laughs> uh that felt pretty wild but then i guess you know this is when it gets you like i guess if someone ever unplugged devs who would know? They wouldn't know. Yeah, right. The other thing, now that I'm remembering, that I was really intrigued by at the end of the episode was when uh, Lily goes to Forrest and they connect and they talk about their wild, that wild thing that happened when they both died. He's like, the multiverse is real. Shout out to Doctor Strange. <laughs> and we're the lucky ones because we're here in heaven. And that creates in the viewer's mind that 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 thing that always makes people interested in the multiverse, which is at the moment of her death and the moment of the reboot, if there's machines inside of machines, how many alternate lilies woke up into some version of hell? And what would that look like? And what would that mean? And what is the what is her obligation to any of that? I don't know. And that's definitely not eight episodes of TV. Uh, you can't fit that kind of question into eight sure. episodes of a TV yeah, show. Yeah, I think the point is to make you ask. Do you Do you have any thoughts on the relationship between this show and Ex Machina once we found out that it was actually called Deus. Um, by the way, just so you know, when Forrest was like, no, it's Roman, I was like, the show is called D-E-5-S? <laughs> Me too. Is it Delaware Fifths? I thought that too. 
I thought that too. I was like, what? We had Super Bowl brain. In yeah, that you moment. and me are fucking idiots, man. Like, I don't <laughs> think we're not like smart enough for this stuff. Uh, I thought that was a cool connection. I love it when work talks to itself, each other, like works within an artist's portfolio, t- speaks to one another. Uh, I didn't really. I, I had not prepared for that though. I, I'd not. I'm not not for this podcast, but can, I mean in my life, I like. I wasn't like. Oh wait, what did what was Oscar Isaac trying to do? Can I just say? Um, in the pantheon of no, you're pronouncing it wrong. Head exploding emoji moments. This is this is up there. I bet there are others that people can suggest to us on Twitter. But the, the place that I went to, and I I know you're going to leave me alone on Nerd Island here because those days of thumbing through Chris Claremont graphic, you know, Chris Claremont X Men collections in Vermont are long ago and in your rearview mirror. But did you ever read the comic book series Weapon X? the great artist Barry Windsor Smith did. It was like the the long hoped for Wolverine origin story. Was it, it no, was I don't think in the I did. 90s. I don't think and it I was did. basically like Wolverine, the most popular character in comics in the 80s and 90s, but no one knew like, well, how did he get his metal claws and blah, blah, blah. And how old is he? And so Marvel was like, oh, it's always a mystery. And then eventually they, of course, filled in all the origin of it. But the idea is that he was experimented on you know, in a lab. And some of that was in the X- X-Men 2. And he, he, in his name as the experiment was Weapon X, right? Mm-hmm. And then when Grant Morrison did his absolutely mind-bending and to my mind, like absolutely, like that was just it, essential X-Men run at the turn of the century. Sounds crazy to say that. He was like, no, no, it was Weapon 10. Oh, what a smart ass. There were nine ass. weapons before him. And so it like backfilled all this stuff and it blew your mind because it was just one of those things. And it's one of my favorite things in storytelling. And actually, Jonathan Hickman is doing that now in X-Men where it's just like, oh, that's that was you left all this fruit on the tree and you didn't realize it. You I'm down to talk about the Hickman wrong. X-Men. I can do the Hickman X-Men with you at some point. We got to get Concepcion on. Then we got to do it. Okay, uh, we can wrap it up there. Um, we'll come back on Monday. Maybe we'll talk some Top Chef, some Mrs. America. We'll have plenty of stuff, I'm sure. Greenwald, we'll let you go back inside now. I love the, the, the bird sounds on the podcast today. It's transporting. I, I, I gotta say, if you... I, you have Ferris Bueller in my mind, but I just want to say, if you have the opportunity to live in California... <laughs> it's choice. It's so choice. At yeah. least we have this. I highly recommend it. Um, good seeing you, buddy. Great seeing you, man. Love to pod. Love to talk talk to you guys soon. See you Monday. Bye, Bransky. Stay safe.